0: Welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, coming back to the show. First time listeners, viewers, thank you so much. As always, it is the fun drive. It is the time where we ask about, are you interested? Are you willing? Are you able to support Counterpunch when Counterpunch really needs that support financially? I don't know if you've seen the most recent developments, but Counterpunch has been targeted, been attacked, a DDoS or whatever it is that they call that. Counterpunch's website has been targeted by unknown actors. And I think we all understand why it is because Counterpunch publishes the kind of analysis that you all know about, the kinds of things that you've depended on for 30 plus years. So here's the deal. Counterpunch needs you. I don't know why I said, here's the deal. Like I'm like Joe Biden or some nonsense. So. Counterpunch is asking for you guys to support counterpunch needs that. Counterpunch appreciates that. The way I'm speaking about Counterpunch is weird, so I'm just going to segue from that into talking about my guest. Rebecca Maria Goldschmidt is with me today. Rebecca is an artist and cultural worker currently pursuing her doctorate at Hiroshima City University in Japan. She is a program director for the Queer Mikva Project. She is also the author of a very important article in Counterpunch just the other day, This is Genocide, all out to end the war on Gaza. You can follow her on Instagram at big, big, big things. Rebecca Maria Goldschmidt, welcome to Counterpunch Radio.
1: Thanks so much, Eric. Ohayou gozaimasu. Good morning from Japan.
0: So I guess you've already segued us into the question. Tell us about yourself a little bit background, how you became engaged in peace activism, Palestine solidarity work, and how the heck you ended up in Japan.
1: Sure. Yeah. Thanks so much, Eric, and and to everyone at Counterpunch for the work that you guys are doing to get information out about what's going on in Israel and Palestine. Um, Well, my name is Rebecca. I grew up in Chicago, but I was born in Arizona. I was born in Phoenix, Arizona, and my parents are both kind of from Chicago. My father was actually born in Haifa. Um, His parents are German Jews who left to uh, left, left Nazi Germany to go to Palestine during the war um, and they met there and my mom's side of the family is actually from the Philippines and they left um, in the kind of early 1900s 1950s to come to Chicago and my mom was born in Chicago so my parents actually both met in Chicago but my father was born in Haifa my mother was born there, and I grew up there. Um, I was born in Phoenix, but I grew up in Chicago, and yeah, I went to a Jewish school, a Jewish day school, as they call it, um, and we grew up with all the Jewish values of all the Jewish holidays, all of the, um, you know, weekends, going to synagogues sometimes, but basically just it was a very American Jewish education. That was very important to my father and his parents, um, that we were educated in our music, in our songs, in our prayers, in our um, culture, and that also necessitated uh, support of the state of Israel, because you know my father was born there, my grandparents had um, basically fled there and helped with the establishment, or were were there and part of. The establishment of the state and so it was important that we had you know a good Jewish education which I think was important and I feel very grateful for the education that I did have because it was very about very critical very arts focused um, and it wasn't um, you know it, it was uh, I think well-rounded and um, let me just say It was important that uh, we were educated in this way growing up in Chicago. And at the same time, um, yeah, there was just a lot of other stuff, other stuff (laughs) that came in with that education, which includes Zionism. And so, yeah, I think when I went to high school, it was, oh, I also do want to say I grew up in that school being one of the very few brown people. You know, because I was mixed. I was Filipino and Jewish. There were a couple of other Asian Jewish people, um, but most it was, was mostly Ashkenazi, you know, white passing, you know, white looking Jews. And um, I was on a scholarship. And so we were definitely sort of like um, a different family um and there was also a lot of weird stuff around that that I won't get into but I do think that growing up in that experience and then leaving and then going to a high school that was an extremely diverse big high school Lincoln Park High School in Chicago um that was like a very shocking experience for me going from a small white ashkenazi jewish community into an extremely diverse big you know inner city Chicago high school. And I think it was really in high school that I started to to kind of like question what that was all about, you know, what the whole conversation, the conversations were in, in grade school. And then also, I, I forgot to mention that we did go to Israel. It was 2000, the year 2000, we were actually the last class, they would do a trip to Israel every year, you know, as part of the um, process of, kind of convincing us that we should move there or convincing us that we should live in Israel or just convincing us that we should support monetarily or in other ways, you know, the state. Um, we did a lot of conversations around peace. I remember Shimon Peres, we were writing letters to Shimon Peres and, and when Yitzhak Rabin was assassinated in the quote unquote peace process, you know, we we experienced the 90s through the lens of a Zionist Israeli school and then you know we were we were just praying for peace all the time as children as children um, but we didn't obviously understand the political situation of what was really happening so when we went there um, in 2000 it was also like very eye-opening for me of course they take you to all of the sites it's kind of like a mini birthright trip um, for those who aren't familiar birthright is uh, is a trip to Israel, a free trip to Israel that they give to all Jews. The Israeli government sponsors this free trip to Israel for all Jews who want to go for young people. And up until I think age 25, you're able to do that. And so this was kind of like a mini version of that, our school, our final school trip to kind of encapsulate what we did uh, in school. And so I remember going on that and just, of course, really loving it. It's a beautiful place. You're with all your friends um, and really just being in that mindset of like, wow, Israel is like a beautiful place to be. And it's our home. It's our home. And that was really um, reiterated a lot in in our upbringing. And so I want to say all that, because when I got to high school, and I was kind of like, I don't know, just listening to punk music and like kind of getting into more political politicized. um, And then the Iraq war happened, I was participating more Amnesty International stuff. I was really like, I don't know. I just didn't know how to feel about it. I just was hearing more about how Israel was like, not that great. And I just was like, you know, I can't even like handle that. I'm just going to walk away. And then, yeah, I guess in college too, I wasn't really involved in the conversation. I didn't have that many Jewish friends. I went to Portland. I went to school in Portland, Oregon. I didn't know that many Jewish people. And I basically just said, I don't want to deal with this. I was like, I know this was like my upbringing and my education, but I don't, I was just confused. Um, and then I think it was 2013 that I went back to, um, the occupied territories with my family. Like I, we went to, uh, my family had a family reunion in 2013 because of course my father's family still has family there. Um, and I know they can't stand that I'm talking about this right now. So just FYI, I'm like, uh, how much do I want to say, but yeah, Basically, we went back, um, and it was 2013, and I went on a tour of East Jerusalem with Ir Amim. Ir Amim is an organization that, you know, helps, uh, they basically work on Jerusalem issues. And so they, um, a friend who was studying to be a rabbi, who was like a radical rabbi, <laughs> had recommended, hey, you should, if you're going to Jerusalem, go check out Ir Amim. So they gave us a tour of you know, different points in East Jerusalem where you could see the wall that, at that time, the wall at certain points was still being built. Um, and I, I took a lot of photos. I took it all on film, but you know, there were like those, the, the Palestinian people had put up um, a, a net to catch the trash because the Jewish people would just throw trash down into the area where they were Um, I remember just, yeah, the wall, the security, like all all of that that stuff, like all of the awful things that we know to be true now. Um, The checkpoints, um, of course, I didn't, because I have an Israeli passport, because my father gave me dual citizenship, I didn't go to certain places, you know, like there's certain places I can't go. But I also do I really want to reiterate this to the listeners that as a person who literally has nothing to do with Palestine, literally nothing to do with that place besides the fact that my father was born there, I actually have access to go to many, many places um, because of that, that paper um, that Palestinians whose families have lived there for multiple generations, they can't even go. Um, and so it's I mean, there's a long, I have like so many things to say, Eric, but I think the main point is, um, you know, growing up, we really did have this emphasis on, on peace as children. That was what we were taught. Um, And so in my process of sort of like de-Zionizing myself and getting and coming out of the, the thinking around like why I need to be in Israel Um, I really had to separate myself from my family and like really kind of distance myself from the ideology and the thinking because, um, yeah, it's just very pervasive in our, in our community. Yeah.
0: So would you say that you were, I guess the question really is, was it, was there a moment of realization or was this just a subtle process over a long period of time or is it both?
1: You know, it's so funny because I was just messaging a friend of mine from grade school. She was like one of my best friends in grade school and we we're just texting. We're like, this is absolutely awful. You know, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And I said, you know, I have to tell you that I think I remember, I know I remember the first time that that there was a crack in that vision for me. And we were talking and I'm not exactly sure what it was about. And I, I wish I could remember and I got to go look and see if I wrote this down somewhere, but basically she just made some, she's a very sarcastic person in general. And she just made some comment like, Oh, well you actually believe Israel on that one or like something like that. And I just like it, I just remember, I really remember, I think I was probably like 13 or 14 or something. And I was like, wait, what, you know, like, what do you mean it that we don't huh? You know, like it was just like total cognitive dissonance. Like how could you not believe that that's a real thing? And then I think, you know, in, in my, in my political education and my awakening and, and many other ways, there were so many other things that built into that, like, especially with Iraq. I mean, that was huge. Um, Afghanistan and what was going on and just understanding us imperialism in general, you know? Um, studying Latin America, like in high school, and studying—I um, don't even know. I mean, I hadn't even—I th- hadn't even gone into studying the Philippines at that point. But basically, just yeah, consistently being awakened to these, um, you know, struggles that were tangential—human rights struggles, basically. Um, I mean, I was really into animal rights in in high school because I was a, an empathetic person who cared about, you know, our food systems and you know, how other beings were being treated. And I think I've always been like that. And so for me, when when she said that it cracked it open. And then I, I think from there, everything else just kind of like helped open it a little bit more. But because like I was saying, it was such a place of like, I just didn't really know how to deal with it. It was shameful. I was like, what do you mean? We, I don't get it. And then to understand that Israel was doing stuff that I didn't really like, or it was like, up against the other values that I had it was I just couldn't even look at it and I think a lot of us have done a lot of us in the American Jewish community have done that we've been willfully ignorant i was willfully ignorant for a long time yeah
0: now were you taught were you taught that palestinians don't really exist that Palestinians are kind of a a creation, a political creation, that they're actually Egyptians or Jordanians or Syrians or Lebanese and whatever. Um, This is, I mentioned this, I've mentioned this many times, but this was one of the things that I always, that always really resonated with me as far as like trying to pinpoint when it was that I was able to sort of begin to unlearn a lot of things was when I started to realize like, wow, that's not true. You know, and actually let's figure out what, who these people are and what their history is. Oh, okay. So I want to know if you were taught that in your sort of Zionist uh, indoctrination or whatever you want to call it. And um, if you weren't, how did you find the empathy Mm. to sort of pull all of this apart?
1: That's a really good question. Um, I don't think we ever heard that like explicitly, I don't recall really explicitly there being this, like Palestinians are a fake people, you know, I'm I'm sure that's an argument. I'm sure, you know, clearly it is because that's what you you were receiving, but really it was more like, I remember, I remember there's this deep um, memory in my, in my brain of just the letters PLO and the letters PLO like, you know, the, 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 Palestinian liberation organization, they, that phrase, I think was really demonized. Like the, the, I didn't understand. I don't even think we really talked about what it was. And then I must say then too, 2000, we, the year 2000, we went to Israel on our trip, right? Israel, Israel, like the state of Israel. And then in 2001, it was 9-11. And so it was this timing of like, and then, you know, it was like, we had already graduated, but the other, the next class after us, they were like, well, we're not going, we're not going because terrorism, because terrorism. And I think it was also, we had a lot of, um, indoctrination more into the idea that terrorists, that terrorism, I mean, there were all the bus bombings and all of these, you know, awful suicide bombings and stuff in the nineties. So that was everything that we were kind of like getting the secondhand, um, you know, hearing of uh, secondhand stories of that. And so there was a lot of fear, just a lot of fear. We grew up with a lot of fear that someone always wanted to destroy us.
0: It's interesting because now that I look up, look back at it, you know, I do think that it's, you know, because I have, as far as my background, is very much, much more secular yours i didn't have any i didn't have any religious school i always went to public mm. school i never went to a synagogue really at mm. all mm. um my my family comes from the soviet union so they're very de you know re, you know de-religionized or whatever you know they, they they don't have those traditions in the same way and so um i didn't really have any of that kind of indoctrination but it was much more political my you know like many soviet immigrants you know they sort of embrace neocon politics. And I was you know, raised in Southern California, sort of the seat in Orange County, the seat of neocon reactionary republicanism. And, you know, so for me, the indoctrination part was, was more of a political one hmm. than really ever religious or cultural in some of the ways that you've been describing. So that's interesting to me.
1: That is very interesting. And I'm sure there's a lot of different ways, you know, I mean, Zionism is also extremely influential in the Christian community, you know, in the evangelical, in the, you know, the Christian Zionists are the biggest supporters of Palestine, you know, I mean, they, they do a lot. And and I'm sure that the way that it's taught in those um, communities is also different. It has a different flavor. It has a different, you know, way of um, convincing people that, you know, Jew, the Jews need to be in Israel, <laughs>
0: So um, I want to switch gears a little bit now and talk about uh, your article that we published in Counterpunch just the other day. We're recording here on the 19th of October, at least U.S. time. I guess it's the 20th over there. Um, So your article, This is Genocide, All Out to End the War on Gaza. Can you obviously summarize it a little bit for people who are listening to us and haven't read the article? But in particular, I want to talk about the use of the word genocide. Mm. And how and why you see Israel's attack on the Palestinians, um, on Gaza now, but on Palestinians more broadly as genocide?
1: Yeah, great question. And I think this will lead into this definition. Um, I, I do want to also say that my great grandparents on my father's side, so my father's grandparents actually died in Auschwitz. And I have my grandmother's name, Rebecca. And I think to me, this is actually one of the things that motivates me the most in my fight as an ally for Palestinian liberation is because I do not believe that our pain and suffering, the pain and suffering of our ancestors, not only in the European Holocaust, but before that, as people who were displaced for many generations as Jews, I believe that our pain has been co opted by a Zionist state entity. um, That, you know, that our stories are being used to give us a sense of unending fear. And because we have that fear, we feel the necessity to build a wall around ourselves and create a sense of false security for ourselves um, with surveillance technology and our military and sending all our children to be in the military and I'm speaking as a person who has an Israeli passport but I did not grow up in Israel so that's very different I'm sure there are people from Israel who have very different experience than I do but from the American perspective as a Jewish American as a Jewish person of color as a Filipino person who also understands you know colonial, colonialism and repeat colonizations and also um, murder and 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 war um, from multiple different entities state entities I believe that what's happening and has been happening for the past 75 years in Israel is a slow genocide. It's an intentional erasure of uh, people who are of a place in order to take their land and resources. And I think that the Jewish story, the Jewish histories, our Jewish ancestral histories and the memories of our ancestors have been stolen and used to justify the murder of Palestinian people for 75 years. And I refuse as a Jewish person and as a Holocaust descendant to allow that to happen. We, we say not in my name, not in our name. And yeah, I, I it took me a long time to get to this place. I'm 36 years old, but you know, I think everything that I've learned along the way has helped me better understand having empathy for other human beings And really needing, I mean, this this is a bigger question of just decrying war in general and decrying weapons production in general, especially nuclear. And, you know, again, I'm speaking from Hiroshima, so it's important for me to speak to the idea of nuclear destruction because I'm speaking from the epicenter of that, you know, destruction. Um, you know, weapons now technology. We're in a totally different ballgame as we were in 1945, or you know, even even before that, and when when or even 48. Let's just say 48 when the state was created. You know, we're in a totally different realm. And I just really, really believe that all people, all people need, deserve a, a a place to feel safe, and that our safety does not depend on weapons. Our safety does not depend on nuclear weapons. It doesn't depend on surveillance weapons. It doesn't depend on automated machine guns mounted on a checkpoint. It depends on actual peacemaking and actual communication and actual community building, like people lived in Palestine, Jews and and Muslim people and Arab people. Um, for generations before this. So this is a new phenomenon for the region. I'm not saying that there haven't been conflicts or wars or whatever before that, but there have been times of peace in the region, um, of, of, of communal living. And, and we know this from, you know, people who have passed that information down to us. But the the blinders have been put on us so, diff- you know, the, the big blinders of Zionism um, have really been guiding all of us in this particular way. And I'm just really urging, especially the people who are Jewish who are listening, to really dig into those stories and understand, you know, what is our relation to this place and what responsibility we have to it. Because, you know, going back to this idea of genocide, genocide is an explicit um, erasure of people. I think a lot of people think a genocide is like a mass murder of people. You know, it's just, a, it's numbers. It's a numbers game. Like it's got to be over five or six zeros at the end of the, um, yeah, at the end of the number for it to like qualify. But really what it is, it's, it's a racist, colonialist, imperialist, um, patriarchal method of removing people from a place and stealing their land and resources, and water, and other things, culture even. Um, and so, you know, I, I think it's really hard to say that. A lot of people don't like that I say that. That's why we're getting cyber attacked, you know. And I think, specifically, um, you know, speaking speaking from Japan, um, you know, there's just. There's a lot of questioning even here. There's a lot of there's a lot of empathy in Japan for what's happening in Palestine, but at the same time, people are very scared to say the truth. And I think um, from all angles, from all angles, everyone is scared to say what this really is. But to me, like the intentional. Um, injuring of people, the disabling of people, the limiting of people's access to water, poisoning wells, the uprooting of a million olive trees. If people are not aware of this, the IDF, the Israeli um, Defense Forces, uproot ancient olive trees. This is actually against Jewish law. There's a law in, in Judaism that says even in times of war, you do not destroy a fruit tree and the fact that you know they are uprooting trees because they know that the people the Palestinian people are so deeply connected to their um to their groves that the olive is the epicenter of the ecological uh social relations and culture of of this region that if they destroy the trees this is a whole other you know Question, But if we're just looking at this from an ecological perspective, and we don't want to think about humans because we don't know how we feel about the human situation, this is an ecological disaster that has been wrought upon the place in terms of water, in terms of um, trees, the the quote unquote, you know, making the desert bloom situation the constant construction. I mean, there's many, many reasons in ecological analysis as to why this is disastrous and, and genocidal. So I, I, it's important to say that too.
0: There's never been a genocide without the accompanying dehumanization. <laughs> and this is one of the most critical, I think, elements of all of this. It's one of the ones that I try to highlight when I talk about it: is the fact that Palestinians are subhumans yeah, in the yeah. eyes of in the eyes of a, a sort of a hardened Zionist outlook, where they not only are they not deserving of a state, they're not deserving of rights that would belong to any other human being. And that, again, I mean, I don't want to harp on the same point, but that ties into this idea that they don't exist as well, right? Politically, the idea of undermining Palestinians' very existence means that you can negate their rights in all forms, right? So I think that this is also a part of this dynamic that needs to be understood.
1: Yes, thank you, and that's probably the key element of it. And especially, we're seeing that right now with the media and calling them human animals and calling the Palestinian people, you know, all the different tropes of BS that we've seen um, operate. I mean, that's exactly what they called us. That's exactly what they called the Jewish people in 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 Europe when they were trying to liquidate the Jewish people, you know. And and it's it and it's really truly a tragedy, that our ancestors' experiences of this exact situation have been manipulated. And the fear and anger and shame around what happened to us has been manipulated into believing the same thing about other people. And I just want to speak as a Jewish person to say that that is not what we stand for. And yeah, we we refuse to allow that to happen again to anyone, including the Palestinian people.
0: Well, and also the political understanding is key. And it took me a long time as well, because of course, they don't teach any of these kinds of things in college. They teach you all kinds of bullshit, right? Mm -hmm. So like, it really took me a long time to really understand that Zionism is actually the most reactionary political current of jewish life of the early 20th century that it was the one that won out because it served the interests of imperialism and that there were very concrete historical reasons for why this all happened in the way that it did including the collapse of the jewish left and its sort of amalgamation the soviet period anyway i don't have time for all that the point being that zionism is a reactionary colonial sort of framework, ultra, sort I don't want to say ultra, but nationalist and reactionary to its core. And in understanding it that way, we also understand the progression from 1948 to now, where it's no longer just a reactionary, nationalist, colonialist outlook. These, the state of Israel is fully fascist. It has yeah. it has yeah. fully morphed into a fascist state with a fascist political culture and a fascist social uh, dynamic, um, and that includes the mainstreaming of the uh, various ultra right wing Nazi israeli forces that includes the sort of complete marginalization of anything resembling the left when you were in israel in 2000 even in 2000 23 years ago it's vastly different politically now so i think we should also talk a little bit about the evolution of israel and what that means for understanding of this genocide
1: i think that's a really important point and you know In the past, I want to say three to four or five years, I've been more involved with Jewish Voice for Peace. And they are very, very active in the American Jewish community in really sounding the alarm consistently about what's happening in Palestine. And I feel like without them, I wouldn't have had this kind of education at all because they're all such principled peacemakers and have been do, have been in this struggle for you know since the '90s. Um, but I, I I do think that the most recent developments, and if you guys have been following what's been happening in Israel with the protests and the collapse and the judicial reforms and the, you know, again like you're saying, this awful. Just fascist, right-wing, extreme religious extremists. Um, I don't even want to say their names, but we know who they are. Like these people who are have taken the leadership, basically taken the helm of this place, and are just going all out um, in in the wrong way. And this is why we're in this situation because the political development into what this is right now has been so drastic and very quick. Very fast, um, and and again, it's slow. But just in the past couple of years, I mean, again, this year was already the deadliest year for Palestinians. Um, you know, in the in the past couple of years, uh, there's there's so much factual information that just indicates, um, you know, again, more the increase of of settlers occupying homes, the increase of more armed settler groups, just. Roaming and harassing Palestinians, which they've done for years already now, but those kinds of incidents are just increasing. The reports of you know people just being harassed and, and their land being actively stolen, their homes being actively invaded, and people getting kicked out. Um, I think because of the internet, people have been a little bit more aware of this kind of process that's been going on for a long time, but. Um, you know now that we're in this situation where and then of course we cannot forget that the us is backing all of this and so it's just such a fucking mess and a disaster it's like hard to even begin like where you start with it but i do believe that um we saw it coming we saw it coming people have been talking about this everyone has known that this has been happening regardless i mean they the this has been happening for so long and people have been speaking about this for so long and people have been consistently silenced you know un uh, human rights watch btselem we have so many reports that this is an apartheid state it's confirmed even before the reports it was confirmed there are so many like, i don't know what it's going to take the international community to act or move on giving some kind of um you know to i don't even want to say punishment i just want to say like how has this not been shut down already? And we know why. It's because the United States has interest in the region. It's an important, basically, mil- nuclear military base for the United States. And if who, who can challenge that, basically? I mean, we've seen them veto all, in, uh, all of the UN um, motions to do anything. And everyone's basically handcuffed in this situation. Um, and, and that's why I said in my article that we have been taken, all of us have been taken hostage. We've all been taken hostage by this situation because as much as we're screaming and demanding something to happen, um, you know, it's like these larger powers, the larger imperialist corporate nuclear weapons industry that, is, is, that needs that area for what they do. And again, I I also want to say that uh, when I lived, I lived in the um, U.S.-Mexico border, I lived in Tijuana for three years. And so I I have the experience of living in a border, uh, uh, you know, border town of of working in one side and going back to the other side and moving and going through checkpoints and sitting in the borderline. And I lived with people who had to go to school and cross the border to go to school every day. And the experience of living in a hyper surveilled area that is a militarized border checkpoint is extremely traumatizing. I mean, I was only there for a few years, but imagine the people who have to grow up in these environments. And guess what? All of those borders are just, Palestine is a testing area for all of the weapons that get used all over the world in all of our wars. All of the wars that America perpetuates and Britain and France and You know, all of the Western powers are consistently instigating. Um, Palestine is the testing ground for these weapons. And that includes border security, surveillance, cameras, all of those things. And this is why no one wants us to say this shit is because once people understand what these quote unquote conflicts are, Um, You know, we've been seeing again, all of the Raytheon, Boeing, all of the stocks are going up right now because people are confirming that the weapons are working in the ways that we want them to. And to me, that is such, I, I have no words. I have no words for what we've seen this week. I mean, I, it's been horrifying. And if you're not horrified, I'm not sure who you are. As a human being, yeah.
0: We will leave it there. That's beautifully said. Uh, Rebecca Maria Goldschmidt has been with us today. Uh, the article we've been talking about this is genocide all out to end the war on Gaza. That's in Counterpunch. Uh, you can follow her on Instagram at big, big, big things. That's three bigs. Okay. Don't you dare try two bigs. It's three bigs.
1: Three people. Big, big,
0: big big things. All right. Maybe I just said it four times. Who knows? Hey. All right. Um, all right. Everyone. Thank you as always. And we will chat again very, very soon. <laughs>